Good morning, everyone. So, like was said, we're going to be in Psalm 26 for the lesson this morning. And we're going to be focusing on the psalm as seeing David's perspective of God and seeing the perspective of righteousness in the psalm. Uh, for those of you who are here for the Bible study in Jude, the psalms tend to have difficult language. And there's a lot of New Testament passages that when you compare it or relate it to language in the Psalms, you'll see a lot of similarities in things that are said in the New Testament at times compared to some of the more difficult statements in the Psalms. So I bring up Jude in our Bible class because David will say, and if you notice in our scripture reading, verse 4 and 5, uh, David will say some things that, again, seem fairly harsh about people who are deceptive or hypocrites, pretenders, and that he hates the assembly of evildoers. But I'd argue that David in the Old Testament, in an Old Testament context, is simply applying the attitude advocated by Jude toward false teachers in his uh, context in Old Testament time. Um, and I won't be referencing that point by point through the lesson, but just keep that in mind that Jude and Psalm 26 really have a number of similarities even beyond that. Uh, and to help make sense of some of these passages in uh, some of these statements in Psalm 26, um, I'll have some uh, verses on the board uh, to reference. But as far as being in our Bibles, we're going to be staying in Psalm 26. And with the Psalms, uh, just a couple of things again to keep in mind that the Psalms are quoted more in the New Testament than any other book of the Old Testament. And so I would say that the inward attitude of the psalmists is very outwardly expressed and fulfilled in the New Testament. That Jesus would quote the psalms. He would have psalms quoted about him. New Testament writers will, will quote psalms in relation to the way that we need to think and our identity. So the psalms are ultimately saturated with ideas of pure faith. Faith that transcends just an Old Testament, Old Covenant context. And I think that's what we see in Psalm 26. We're seeing faith in its pure essence. And faith in its pure essence, like Hebrews chapter 11, where we have a, a faith hall of fame in a sense. When we see faith in its pure essence, we're seeing something that is very relatable. Again, something that just transcends just an Old Testament context. We'll try to see the, the statements in Psalm 26 in relevant ways. And then lastly, by way of introduction, if you look at the heading of who wrote this, uh, this is of David. How is David described by God himself? He's a man after God's own heart. So again, I know I keep bringing up these difficult statements in the Psalms, but very often uh, in the Psalms, what we need to often do is slow down and think in a way where we are challenged by the Psalms to see lessons and applications that even if it takes time to work out, uh, seeing that David is expressing things that are good and righteous, even if it can be difficult to figure out how exactly that is and how to make an application of that. And again, we'll be trying to make some applications of the lesson this morning. I'm going to read Psalm 26 again before we start going through it verse by verse. Um, but just to kind of give a little forewarning, the, the translation I'm using is the Legacy Standard Bible. Uh, it's a recent kind of slightly modified version of the New American Standard 95 and one of the main things it does is it changes LORD, all capitals, uh, to Yahweh. So when I say Yahweh in your Bibles, that'll be uh, LORD in your translation. Psalm 26. Give me justice, O Yahweh, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in Yahweh, I will not waver. 
Test me, O Yahweh, and try me. Refine my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I do not sit with worthless men, but I will not go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Yahweh, in order to proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and recount all your wondrous deeds. O Yahweh, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme and, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the congregations, I shall bless Yahweh. So the way we're going to work through this is splitting it into three sections. We're going to first look at one through three. We're going to see David's confidence. Verses four through seven, we'll think about David's associations. And then eight through 12, we'll think about his ambitions. So starting with verse one through three, the first thing David does is he appeals to God for justice. So when he says, vindicate me, O Lord, that's David seeking justice from God. What that implies is Psalm 26 is being written during a hard time in David's life. It means David is either being treated in a way where it is unfair, he's innocent, but he's being treated as if he's guilty, or he's being actively falsely accused of something. And it's just not proper for him to seek justice for himself. He just has to wait on the Lord and do God's will and trust that God will vindicate his circumstances. Uh, We see situations in David's life frequently that fit this. Think about when he was running away from Saul for years of his youth. You know, is Saul persecuting David because David was guilty of anything? No, if anything, Saul was persecuting David because of David's innocence. And could David, in good conscience and in godliness, fight Saul, destroy Saul? He couldn't. And all he could do was wait for God's vindication When his son Absalom rose up against him similarly, and and again, there's other situations in David's life where all David could do is trust that somehow God would providentially work out the situation because to continue through the situation in righteousness demanded that David simply wait on the Lord and trust his judgment. So again, what this implies is this is during a very difficult time in David's life, which I think enhances the nature of what David is pursuing and affirming in this time. So something that can be difficult is David affirms he's been walking in his integrity and that he's been trusting in the Lord without wavering. You know, you think about saying that of yourself. Wouldn't that feel kind of arrogant to say, you know what, I've been trusting in the Lord in without wavering and I've been walking in my integrity. Even though that might be difficult to think about saying of yourself, There's an idea where God has been very clear with what we need to do to serve him, have unity with him. God has proven that if he's forgiven us, he really means it. God doesn't forgive us and then behind the scenes hold grudges against us. And he's given us his will that we can clearly understand what we need to do to obey him. You know, the idea is just David knows where he stands with God. And I would argue we can know where we stand with God. And oftentimes we're very insecure because we're just not being very thoughtful about what God really says and who God really is. You know, God is not unpredictable. 
God is not shifting around and, you know, going to surprise us with his judgment. You know, God is predictably gracious and compassionate and kind. We're very aware of our struggles, but David, even in the psalm, will bring up his awareness of his own struggles. And I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. You know, was Paul insecure of his relationship with God? Was he hanging in doubt about whether or not he was really in step with the Lord and whether or not he was ultimately going to go to heaven one day? You know, even in 2 Corinthians, Paul referencing his conduct, he says, our proud confidence is this, testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. You know, so Paul has confidence that he's been walking in step with the Lord. And he's even willing to bring this up to the Corinthians in a situation where, like David here, when 2 Corinthians was written, there were people slandering Paul. But is Paul's confidence a confidence in himself? No, he says it's in holiness, in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, not by his own standard, but it's in the grace of God. He's trusting in God's generosity, his compassion, his mercy. We can have confidence in our relationship with God. And if David could have confidence like this in the Old Testament, how much more can we have confidence in the New Testament? When Jesus has more clearly emphasized how much God loves us and is seeking to show us mercy and grace, how much more confidence can we have that when we ask God for forgiveness, that he's absolutely done that? So I think this is an appeal to God's faithfulness, (laughs) that David believes if God has forgiven him, he really has forgiven him and he's innocent. And that if he really is honestly, genuinely trying to serve the Lord, then he is walking in his integrity. And this is something he's very confident in. And this changes his orientation toward the situation in prayer. This is very important. And then in verse 2, he seeks God's justice. He's confident that he's walking in step with the Lord and he's not wavering. But he also appeals to God even further. He appeals to God to examine his thoughts to examine his heart, test his heart, his desires, his ambitions, his priorities. And he can appeal to God for this in verse 3, because his loving kindness is before his eyes. This term loving kindness is so important in the Old Testament. It's the word hased, chesed. It's a word that uniquely describes God's faithful covenantal love. It's a word that's used of God, expressing God's faithfulness to his covenantal purposes, particularly with his people. I think a similar idea is in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. What better manifestation of God's faithful covenantal love than Jesus, his death on the cross, Jesus' faithfulness to God's purpose and the resurrection from the dead. When we fix our eyes on God's loving kindness and we walk in the truth, It equips us to handle conviction properly. You know, David is inviting God to convict him, to dig deeper than what David even understands or even deeper than David himself can go, to dig deeper into his thoughts and refine them. And I think the idea is this, that if we are fixed on the graciousness of God, the evidence of God's work and graciousness in Jesus especially, and we are trying to walk in the truth, then I want to be as pleasing to him as possible. I want you to think about that. Are you trying to be as pleasing to the Lord as you can possibly be? And if that's not a priority, why isn't it? 
Again, is it just that you're not thinking thoughtfully enough about who God is, about what he said, about how great he is? You know, David sees God's character. He sees the nature of his truth. And he doesn't just want to be pleasing to God generally. He wants to take it as far as he can take it. He wants God to dig as deep into his heart as he can possibly go. He wants him to refine his thoughts as much as they can be refined. He wants to be as closely aligned, not just outwardly. He wants to be as inwardly aligned with God as is possible in the working of God and in his power. If that's not our ambition, then we've misunderstood something about the nature of our relationship with God. You know, Jesus has raised the ceiling even further in what is possible. And again, so if David in the Old Testament was inviting God to refine his inward thoughts and his heart, how much more interested and ambitious ought we to be to seek these things in our relationship with God? So again, if if we're really looking to Jesus, if we're really understanding the nature of what God has given us, this is the inevitable conclusion that even in difficulty, we want to glorify God as much as we can. We want to know him as intimately as we possibly can. We want to think in a way that is as pleasing to God as is possible. And David is holding nothing back. I want you to think about this. Are there things in your life where if you brought that to God, his examination, where you couldn't do that anymore? Or you couldn't enjoy that anymore? Or maybe if you brought it before God and really thought about where that interest fits with what God says. You know, maybe you wouldn't be able to be interested in that anymore. Spend your time on that anymore. I think oftentimes I hold things back because deep down I know if I think too much about this in relation to God's word, I'm going to have to let this go and I just don't want to do that. So this is my secret thing. We have to be more open with God, more honest. To walk in integrity with God is a walk of honesty. It means that David is willing to think what God thinks about everything. And that if David has to change something, he's willing to change that. If David has to confess sin, he's not afraid to do that because God's loving kindness is before his eyes. Let's look at the next section, verses four through seven. So I'm going to read this again. Do not sit with worthless or deceptive men. Uh, this is the word, by the way, worthless. Um, it's the word for idolatry, emptiness, vanity. So either deceptive, worthless, it's meaning the same thing. Do not sit with worthless men, and I will not go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence, so I will go around your altar, O Yahweh, in order to proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and to recount all your wondrous, wondrous deeds. Again, something that's difficult here is, is David is recognizing something. This is very black and white. <laughs> He's recognizing the danger but also the nature of deceptive associations and influences. David is seeing it for what it really is. I want you to go back to Psalm 1. I believe Psalm 1 is like a cornerstone to the Psalms. I think really Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are both like that. But particularly Psalm 1, I want you to look at what the psalmist says here. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. 
but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. In verse uh, 3, he talks about how the righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water, but in verse 4, the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise or stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What is David doing here? Why is he doing it? Is there a utility to recognizing the danger of the influences at work in the world? Again, not that I don't go in the world, not that I'm not trying to reach the world and even have some relationships with people in the world because people need to be saved and rescued. But like Jude, like Jude, like we studied this morning, is there a reality that there are people where their influence is not encouraging righteousness? The way that they think, the way that they talk is not going to draw me closer to the Lord, but actually drive me further away from him if I'm not careful and recognizing this is not an influence that I want to have power over me. So David recognizes in verse 4 and 5, in his setting, there is a danger that he needs to accept. There is an influence that he has to accept. I want you to think about how Jesus trained the disciples to think this way, to recognize danger, even danger among those who are religiously influential. Luke 12, after it says multitudes of people were coming to Jesus, they were stepping on each other. Exciting! He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed and nothing covered up that will not be brought to the light. You know, so in this very exciting time in Jesus's ministry, crowds of people are there. He says, you watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Recognize it for what it is. Did Jesus love the Pharisees? (laughs) Yes. But was he going to give in to their influence? Was he going to treat them like they were just his buddy buddies, his closest companions? Was he in any way going to validate them? Absolutely not. Think about this in Philippians 3. Paul tells them, Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, and note this, of whom I often told you. This is something Paul's been very frequent in bringing up. And now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Why did Jesus tell his disciples to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees? Why was Paul being so frank about the situation? What are they trying to accomplish? Are they saying you just need to like have some kind of harbored sense of bad feeling toward these people? Or is it to guard them? to guard them against an influence that could draw their understanding away from truth and even close doors of influence that could hinder understanding the direction God is trying to take us in. Because the reality is we are susceptible to influence. And if we're not careful, we can be susceptible to influences that do not encourage a right relationship with God. 2 Timothy 3, again, just how frequently these things are brought up. When Paul tells Timothy that in the last days difficult times will come, men will be lovers of self, lovers of many, boastful, revilers. And I don't think he's talking about just people in the world. Notice at the end of this where it's highlighted in orange. They're holding to a form of godliness. You know, so this is brethren. And although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. You know, what are we supposed to do with these instructions? These aren't just things that the Bible says that are to be left there. This is to change our perspective. There are people that these passages apply to. 
and it's difficult. But as much as righteousness encourages incredible love and patience, there's a reality to sin and there's a reality to deception that if we're not careful, we don't recognize it. You know, our greatest danger biblically is deception and influence. How did Satan get to Eve in the very beginning? Deception and influence. We've got to be really careful to think like David. You know, I don't think this is just some kind of hateful Old Testament passage that has no New Testament relevance. Again, the passages we've brought up, these are to be adapted into our own perspective as well. And verse 6 and 7, you know, in verse 6 and 7, I think this is the goal, is David is keeping his attention on where God is trying to take him. What is God trying to accomplish? These are things that the world around us is not going to be encouraging. David wants to go about God's altar in absolute innocence. The altar would be the place you would bring sacrifices for worship. You know, David wants to worship the Lord in utter authenticity and sincerity. Nothing hidden, no hypocrisy, everything laid bare. He wants to proclaim thanksgiving and recount all God's wondrous deeds. You know, sometimes I've got to tell myself, and this, this might sound weird, but I might watch like a movie or something or be around some people. And I know this might sound bad, but afterwards I'll tell myself that thing or those people were not encouraging me to give God thanks. And I know that might sound bad, but that'll motivate me. I need to give God thanks. I need to recognize that I'm in an environment where I'm exposing myself to things where if I'm not careful, I don't realize this isn't encouraging me to think about God. This isn't encouraging me to be thankful to God. This is encouraging maybe more of a worldly-minded, more immediate perspective. And I want to keep my mind on what encourages me to give God the most thanks. We're told in the New Testament to always give thanks, to overflow with thanksgiving. How's that going to happen? The world's not going to encourage that. Worldly influences aren't going to help in that way. Spiritual relationships will. The Bible certainly does. I read my Bible and I am motivated to give God thanks. I'm motivated to realize how much thanks God is worthy to receive. When we worship God when we're together, the world can drown out the purpose of what we do here shortly after we leave. When we assemble, we're getting a breath of fresh air and we're realizing what's most important. You know, what's most important isn't our career. It's not our schooling. It's not academics. It's not money. It's not even comfort or leisure or vacation. What's most important is the Lord. And when we come together, we are remembering what's most important, that God is worthy to be served completely, that he's worthy to be glorified entirely, and he's what's most important. Verse 8 through 12, I'll read this again. Oh, Yahweh, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away with, along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the congregations, I shall bless Yahweh. Something that the psalmists consistently express, you know, it's not just something that they express around others. It's not just something that they sing in songs among the congregation, although he certainly acknowledges in verse 12, he will bless the Lord in the congregation. David has a habit in the Psalms of personally affirming his love for God. Even in prayer, you notice in verse 8, he's talking to the Lord. He says, Oh, Yahweh, I love the habitation of your house 
the place where your glory dwells. You know, I want you to think about this. Do you ever affirm your love for God in your prayers? You know, strangely, that can feel weird sometimes. But David loved God so much. I think it was such a resolve, a commitment, that again, there were influences around him that he recognized there's a danger of having my love for God choked away. No. I love the place where God's dwelling is. His deepest affections are not only drawn to the Lord, they are directed to the Lord. Again, David is thoughtful about his relationship with God. David is sensitive and self-aware. How many letters are written to churches in the New Testament where Christians are not self-aware of what's really going on in their faith? They're not self-aware about influences, even within the church and around them, and correcting these things and bringing these things to light. That's not David. You know, David is honestly very self-aware of what is going on, not just around him, but within him. And so he directs his affections to the Lord. If we want to have a thriving faith, we don't just passively serve the Lord. We direct our love to the Lord. And your deepest affections, that's what you'll meditate on. That's what you can't wait to spend your time on. It's what you focus on when you're alone and no one's watching. That's how you know where your heart is. You know, I get the idea that this is a private psalm being written and preserved now to be spread and shared. But these are private thoughts in a sense. You know, David in his private moments is directing himself to the Lord and directing his affections more intimately toward the Lord. And involved in this is, again, recognizing that there's a separation between where David wants to be and where the wicked are going. It says, don't take my soul away with sinners and peoples whose hands are filled with bribes. This idea of they're willing to compromise what's true. They're willing to compromise the integrity that God seeks from us for some shallow, superficial benefit that ultimately amounts to nothing. And I think something hidden in this that's implied is alluded to in 1 Corinthians 11.32, that David is inviting the Lord to do whatever needs to be done to prevent his life from being taken away with sinners. 1 Corinthians 11.32 says, when we are judged, meaning disciplined by the Lord, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. You know, David is inviting God to discipline him. You know, if something bad has to happen to me, something's got to be ripped out of my hands that I'm clinging to, you know, if someone has to say some difficult thing to me and correct me, God, help it happen. You know, don't let me be drawn into this company of evildoers that are going to be destroyed and judged and condemned. Wow. You know, I've heard people say that they don't pray for patience because they worry about some hardship happening to them that would disrupt their convenient and comfortable desires. Wow, we've got to be willing to endure some hard stuff to be set apart from the world. You know, what's it going to take for us to be holy? To really be holy and committed to the Lord, it's going to take hardship. We're going to have to think about suffering differently. And that's exactly what David is seeing in verse 11. You know, he, he's not seeing this as something self-achieved. He's going to walk in his integrity, but this requires God redeeming him and being gracious to him. The idea is, as David is walking in step with the Lord, it is emphasizing the immensity of his need for God's help. As David is walking in truth and integrity, it is emphasizing the immensity of his need for God's help. Paul emphasizes this in 2 Corinthians through the whole letter. I love 
2 Corinthians and how open Paul is, like the psalmist, about his struggles. One statement like this in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The idea is very, very fragile, delicate vessels. So that the surpassing power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. And he goes on with some more statements similar. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. You know, Paul the Apostle was not living by self-achieved righteousness. You know, he wasn't just having Bible studies with people all the time and having joy and habitually he's just involved in so many good things, he's just on top of the world. Second Corinthians, Paul reveals, walking in step with the Lord as he is, is emphasizing the immensity of his need for the Lord's help. You know, I know this isn't always true, but I think sometimes we've got to be honest with ourselves. Are we really aware of how immense our need is for the Lord's help? Really? Are we really aware of that? And I think we can see that in practicality. Is it reflected in your prayer life? How immensely you need the Lord? Is it reflected in your attitude? How seriously, immensely, immensely you need the Lord? Is that reflected in your relationships with the brethren? You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul brought this to the table in his relationships with the brethren, wanting them to understand Paul's not just arrogant in his relationship with God, thinking that he has power of his own. He's bringing it to the table that he needs prayer. He needs their help. You know, he's vulnerable in every way like the Corinthians are. Again, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The reality is we need God's help. The, the difficulty just comes in of how aware we are of that. For walking in step with the Lord, it helps us see it. We need God's graciousness and redemption desperately, not just to go to heaven one day in the future, but wow, we are in the Lord's hands and we are surrounded by difficulties and Satan is so oppressive. Paul told Timothy, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We've got to deal with difficulty. So again, the challenge is God equips us to think differently about what we must suffer to recognize what reality really is. So in verse 12, what does this do? Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, the life of Jesus is always being manifested in his body as the death of Jesus is being manifested in his body. So verse 12, my foot stands on level ground. You know, again, there's this tension where David doesn't seem to be doing too well. And in so many Psalms, he's in a situation of desperation. It's like he's at wit's end and on the last thread. But reality is, when David is aligned with the Lord, no matter what is going on externally, David is on stable footing. There is no greater security than being in the Lord's hands, even when that means distress, discomfort, even when that means we endure tragedy, when that means things are taken away from us that we don't want to let go of. When we are aligned with the Lord, we are on secure footing, we are on stable ground. And he says, in the congregations, I shall bless Yahweh. And I think the idea is this. David's focus is on helping God's people think of God more highly. To encourage God's people to invest more faith in the Lord. To give God greater praise. And I want you to think, is that the nature of your relationship with others here? Are you actively trying to help others around you to really grow in their faith, 
to elevate their view of the Lord. You know, there's a way where we stir up love and good works here together, singing songs and participating in worship. That's definitely true, certainly. But I think, again, with the New Testament church and things we see David saying, there is a sense where it should go further than that. We're sometimes encouraging each other to go further in our faith, invest more trust may mean giving encouragement that's not easy to give, having spiritual conversations that may feel awkward to bring up, giving correction that may make you feel like you're putting the relationship at risk or making too big of a deal out of something, or maybe you might be misunderstood in the process. Our goal needs to be that we want to help God's people grow in their faith at any cost. So in verse 12, David is going to invest himself the most in the people who have committed themselves to the Lord, the people who have put themselves in the Lord's hands. David wants them to see the security that they have. He wants to be an example of that and a leader in that. Obviously, all of these principles apply perfectly to Jesus. You know, Jesus uh, walked perfectly in his integrity, not in a way that was self-achieved, but Jesus sought God's redemption lived by the graciousness of the Lord. Jesus invested himself and his disciples more than anybody else, those who were choosing to put their trust in the Lord. Jesus made a clear separation, even among the Jews, of those who were genuine and those who were dishonest. And Jesus, in verse 12, his foot stood on a level ground, even when being crucified. And he rose from the dead to bless the name of the Lord to us continuously, to encourage us to invest more faith in the Lord. I hope that's been helpful in Psalm 26, seeing principles that I think would help us see areas of righteousness we can be growing in. What I'd like to do for the end of this lesson is say a prayer for these things and for the invitation song afterwards. If anyone has anything they need to bring forward, that would be the appropriate time for that. If you'll pray with me.